Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 5. Luke, chapter 5. We're continuing this morning our series on vintage Jesus. And what we've been talking about over the last several weeks, and will continue throughout the month of July, is to talk about what Jesus was really like. What He was like as man, what He was like as God, what He is like as man, what He is like as God, because Jesus didn't cease to be a couple of thousand years ago. And so for the last few weeks, we've talked about the things about who Jesus is. Last week, we shifted a little bit and talked about what Jesus did on the cross and the effects that it has today. Well, we're going to shift a little bit more today and talk about what He demands of us. I don't know whether you realize it or not, but Jesus was a pretty demanding fellow. I don't know if any of you here have ever worked for a demanding boss. Maybe some of you here are a demanding boss. I remember when I was growing up, I worked in a, a Dyersburg Fabrics, a textile plant, during a couple of summers of my life. And I think I've told you before about a little bit of that experience. But I, the one thing that, that summer, those two summers did is confirmed in me that I was going to school to get a degree. I worked in the first summer, the dye house. Now, I know that it's a little warm in here today. Amen? We didn't plan that. I'm not preaching on any subjects that require that. That's not part of the agenda. But that summer in the dye house, it would get to 120 to 130 degrees. That was when it was kind of an overcast day. The, the, the place that I worked was the place where they took all the textile that they had made, the rolls of fabric, and they put it in and dyed it different colors. And it was a drying process in, the, in all of it. And that summer, I worked for a pretty demanding boss. Constantly asking you things. Get, asking you to give more than you think you can. I remember reading a, a quote from Tom Landry, who said that his job as a coach was to get men to do more than they thought they could so that it accomplished what they never thought possible. And Jesus in Scripture is a demanding Lord. We're going to look at Luke chapter 5 in just a minute, but one of the reasons that we have to do things like this series on vintage Jesus is because there gets to be these ideas about Jesus out there that are just ridiculous. We talked about those a couple of weeks ago. And part of the problem is we begin to interpret Jesus in light of who we think He is instead of what Scripture says. One man has said that our problem is this. We usually discover Him within some denominational or Christian neighborhood. We meet Jesus in a province and catching a little view of Him, we begin to paint Him in small strokes. The result is the Lion of Judah is reduced to some kittenish creature. Because our understanding cannot write large definitions of who He is. What we're attempting to do over these few weeks is to write the large definition of who He is. Now, you don't have a handout with you this morning. That means you just got to take notes the old-fashioned way, alright? That means we're giving you a week off. Chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. Now, if... I were in a Jewish audience of that day, and I said the word tax collector, booze would rise up from within the congregation. They were hated, despised. And this one's name was Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Most people think that Levi was one of the guys that sat in the tax booth on the road, kind of like a toll booth. And as you went by, he collected the taxes. Now, you know if you've been in church, if not, that's okay, that... The tax collectors of that day, what they did is they would ask for the taxes they were required. 
that there was a certain amount that was given for each person, but that the tax collectors could tell them they wanted as much money as they could. And the tax collectors got to keep whatever the government didn't want. Most tax collectors would charge at least twice what the government wanted and would become very profitable. So Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth, and Jesus, instead of giving him something, requests something of him, demands something of him. And that is, he says, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This morning, basically, there is one point to this sermon that has two different parts. But the first thing that we want to understand, that I want you to understand, about the demanding Savior that we serve, is that Jesus simply demands our everything. Say the word everything with me. Everything. That's one of those words that you don't matter what language you look at, it it means the same thing. It means everything. Jesus demands from us everything. Well, where do I get that? Look at verse 27 again and 28. Jesus walks by, see Levi, and just says to him, follow me. Now, that seems like a simple command. It seems like something that that just seems like just a simple direction, something I might say to Eli on a regular basis. Come on, Eli, let's go, follow me. Or say to Luke, let's get up, Luke, let's follow me. But when you realize that it is Jesus, a a Jew who is there claiming to be the Messiah, is calling to a Jewish person who is on the other team fighting for the Roman government, collecting taxes, hated, despised, that when Jesus says, follow me, it is much more than a simple command. It is a demand to leave everything He knows. If you don't believe it, look at verse 28. Levi got up and left everything and followed Him. In your Bibles, if you've got it open to Luke chapter 5, I don't know what version you may have, but most versions I looked at this week had this word in there. I want you to circle. It's okay to circle in your Bible. I want you to circle the word everything. In verse 28, Levi got up and left everything. Now I want you to think for just a minute, what would everything mean in your life? You see, it's easy when we look on this page of Scripture and we think, oh yeah, sure, Matthew got up, of course Jesus was there, of course He left everything. Well, what would that mean for you? What is everything to you? Is it your house? Is it your job? Is it your money? Is it your security? Is it your family? Matthew or Levi literally left everything. You see, sometimes people assume that Jesus will take a half-hearted commitment, but that's not the case. He wants everything. For some reason, we've given this idea that Jesus is satisfied with part of our lives. That is not the case. He wants everything. For some reason, we have assumed that God will allow us to hold on to a little bit of control. That is not the case. He wants, you know now, don't you? Everything. When Jesus called, Matthew answered. Now, if this were the only time in Scripture, you could say, well, but that was just a special occasion. That was just the tax collector. 
But you know, when he called other disciples, he had them leave their boats. He had them leave where they were. You remember the rich young ruler, don't you? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? The right question. And Jesus begins to say, what about the commandments? And he says, I followed all of those. And then Jesus says, well, then give me everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. The rich young ruler does not want to do that. He walks away. In Luke chapter 9, just a few chapters over, you don't have to turn there, but verses 57 through 62, it tells the story of three people coming to Jesus, wanting to follow Him, and they, 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 they ask the question about what they can do. As they were walking, a man said to Him, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. What He basically says is, you don't know what you're requesting. You're asking to follow Me with no security at all. Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man, instead of like Levi, instead of getting up and going, says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. But Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, you could use those verses to say that Jesus was anti-family, that Jesus was was anti-people taking care of each other. That's not the case. The point is, he knew these guys wanted to follow half-heartedly with still thinking about other concerns. And he demands our everything. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says, Christ declares, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want all. You. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I want to drill the tooth, or I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over your natural self. All the desires which you think are innocent, as well the ones you think that are wicked, everything. And I will give you a new self. In fact, I'll give you. Myself, my will shall become yours. There are a lot of Christians in our world today. A lot of people that call themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ who give Jesus just so much of their time and so much of their money and so much of their work. But that's not what He calls us to do. He demands our everything. Let me give you three things that have to understand, that go under that, that we must do. First of all, we must give Him first priority. In the New Testament, it gives us this idea that our relationship with Christ, the church's relationship with Christ, is much like the relationship of a husband and a wife. And one of the most quoted passages of Scripture about a husband and a wife is that when it comes time to marry, a husband shall, and a husband and wife shall leave their parents, basically, and they shall cleave to one another. And when I stand before people that are getting ready to be married, and when I'm performing a ceremony, that I'll stand before them and talk to them and, and, and just encourage them, one of the things I say is that from this moment forward, one of my favorite moments in the wedding ceremony, by the way, is when the father takes the hand of the bride and she hand, he hands it to the groom. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's not always the father's favorite part. It's one of my favorites. Because it's the symbolism. And I say to the people that are standing there, I say, right now, from this day forward, the most important 
human relationship you have is with each other. You must leave all that other stuff and cleave to one another. The most important relationship you have is with each other. Now, in that talk, I always say the most important human relationship that you have. Because the truth is, Scripture teaches us that before our marriage comes our relationship with Christ. And just as a husband and wife have to leave all that other stuff and come together, we must leave everything else out there and come to Christ. Look at what it says about Matthew. He got up and left everything. It has been said by Mother Teresa that you don't realize Jesus is all you need till Jesus is all you have. And at that moment in his life, Levi realized that Jesus was all he needed because when he left everything, Jesus was all he had. He must be the center of your life. Let's, let's think about the solar system for a minute. Now, I know that's kind of a going a different direction, but think about it with me. Most of you probably thought that the sun is the largest thing in our solar system. But did you realize that it is so large it comprises 99% of the mass of our solar system? It's huge. I mean, you know that Jupiter is 300 times larger than the earth. But the sun is still a thousand times larger than Jupiter. It's the gravitational pull of the sun that keeps everything going in orbit, right? Isn't that an amazing thing? When you think about how far Pluto is out there, whether it's a planet or not, they hadn't decided, have they? When you get out there, how far it is that we still, the gravitational pull of the sun is what keeps it going around. And when you think about that, you think about how large it is, you think about everything that's rotating around it. Now, I was going to this morning have some people come up and stand and represent the sun and the planets, but I didn't know who I would choose to be the sun. didn't want them to be insulted. It's just so much larger. Now, think about your life as a solar system. We got all these balls or planets moving around. There's all kinds of stuff. There's Mercury. It could be our possessions and houses and land. Venus could represent the love in our lives. Earth could be your personal feelings and desires. Mars could represent food, like maybe a Mars bar. Neptune could be your work, your success, your job. Jupiter can symbolize big events in your life, weddings, anniversary, birth of children. Saturn represents your leisure time, your travel, your entertainment. Uranus can uh, separate art, good books or theater. And finally, Pluto can symbolize sports, recreation, hobbies, whatever it is. Now here's the thing. we got all these things transpiring in our lives. But unless we keep Jesus at the very center, everything's going to go out of control. There's some of you right now in your lives, your world is spinning and you don't know how in the world you're ever going to get control of it. The only way you'll ever do it is to make Jesus your first priority. Jesus, when He's talking to the churches in Revelation, He gets onto one church pretty good because it seems like they're doing everything right. They're keeping all the balls in the air. Everything's being juggled correctly. But it says, this I have against you. You have left your first love. You have left your first priority. Hebrews 12, one of my favorite passages of Scripture says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The truth is that 
that passage says that we're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles. We need to be willing to let go of anything that keeps us from keeping Jesus first. Now what's interesting about that in Hebrews 12 is it doesn't mean all bad stuff. Now the sin is bad, but the other stuff doesn't have to be bad. And there are some good things that weigh us down from running the race the right way. When I was growing up, I was not the fastest guy in my class. Some of you that watch some of our softball games realize I'm still not the fastest guy. I just can't get those legs moving like I want to. And so my uncle had this idea growing up that the way he was going to get me to run fast was that he was going to put ankle weights on me. My uncle was my, my uh, baseball coach, my kitty league Dixie Youth baseball coach. And, you know, in, I don't know about Goodlesville, but in Dyersburg, we take that stuff pretty seriously, the whole baseball thing. And so he got me out in the field one day out behind our house and he put the, the ankle weights on me and he said, just run. You know what? I hated those ankle weights. I always was tripping. I couldn't get my legs going. Things weren't happening. And I realized that they wasn't doing any good because when I took the weights off, I ran just as slow as I ran before. And what it says in Scripture is that when we put that stuff around us, it just causes us to slow down in our walk with Christ and not... Run as we should. As long as Jesus is not the sinner, then you've got weights in your life. It says that Levi got up. He left everything. Here's a second thing. We've got to give him complete control. And he followed him. He followed him. Now the understanding there is that he followed him completely, obediently. Whatever Christ called of him to do, he did. He didn't ask questions. He didn't debate. He didn't work it through in his mind. He just knew Christ called him, and so he followed. He listened to the Psalms of that day in Psalm 23, which we know the Lord is my shepherd. He took it to be the truth. And wherever the shepherd went, he went. Now, Dallas Willard has said that the truth is that the Lord is my shepherd is written on many more tombstones than lives. And the truth is that many of us in this room, although we would like to think we have, have not given Christ complete control of our lives. Let me recommend a book to you. It's a short little book. It's actually a pamphlet. It's called My Heart, Christ Home by a guy named Robert Boyd Munger. It's an interesting book because what happens is it shows this picture of Christ coming into our lives and our lives being like a home. And he walks through every room of the home and he takes control of the house one room at a time. And the the author kind of tells the story like he thinks everything's okay and he's given the Lord everything he wants until one day I found Jesus waiting at the door for me. There was this look in his eye. And as I entered, he said to me, there is a peculiar odor in the house. Something must be dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it's in the closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. There was a small closet up in the hall landing, just a few square feet. In that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things I didn't want anybody to know about. Certainly, I didn't want Christ to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting, things left from the old life. I wanted them for myself, and I was afraid to admit they were there. So reluctantly, I went up with him. We climbed the stairs, and the higher we climbed, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed to the door. I was angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to everything. 
the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the rec room. And now he was asking for this little two by four closet. And I said to myself, it's too much. I'm not going to give it up. Reading my thoughts, he says, if you think I'm going to stay here on this floor with that smell, you're mistaken. I'll just sit outside until you're ready. The author says, when one comes to know and love Christ, the worst thing that can happen is to sense Him withdrawing His fellowship. I had to give in. I'll give you the key, I said, but you will have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. He said, just give me the key. Authorize me to take care of it in the closet, and I will. With trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it. He walked to the door, opened it, entered it, took out the stuff that was rotting and threw it away. Then he cleaned the closet and painted it. It was done in no time at all. But what release it was to have that thing taken from my life. I'm not going to ask you today in the midst of this place to declare what's in your closet what it is that you've hidden away from people that you don't want anybody to know about. But this is what I am going to ask you. Have you turned it over to Christ? What's interesting is at the end of the book, I know I'm encouraging you to read a book and then telling you the ending, but still go read it. At the end of the book, he comes to this conclusion that you know what? It's not just every little room. It's not all that little stuff that I have to give. I have to give him everything. Complete control And so we ask Him, Lord, is there any chance You would take over management of the whole house? And He says, I'm sorry, I don't have the title. So I ran and I got it. I'm dropping to my knees. I said, Lord, You have been a guest and I have been the host, but from now on I'm going to be Your servant. You are owner and master. Here it is. All that I am and have forever. Run the house and I'll remain as your servant and your friend. All that Jesus requires of us is everything. We must give Him first priority. We must give Him complete control. And here's a part that's a little different. We must share His gift. You know what I love about what happens in the life of Levi is? The first thing he thinks to do is, I've got to throw a party. And I just want to be honest with you, this was not a church fellowship party. Alright? Now, I love church fellowships. I love them. I am a Baptist preacher and I do love fried chicken, so I love church fellowships. Macaroni and cheese is the food of God. I am convinced that the marriage supper of the Lamb, there will be in front of me a big chicken thigh fried just right, macaroni and cheese, mashed potato, green peas, and some sweet tea with real sugar, none of this Splenda stuff that i got to drink now. Alright? But, this was not a church fellowship party. Most of you would have been very uncomfortable at this party. Very uncomfortable. In fact, I'd like to see some of you at the party described here. Just to see your faces. Levi just says, I've got to throw a party. So it says in verse 29, then Levi had a great banquet. Now that word needs to be translated because in our world when we think of banquet, we think of formal attire and plates sitting down and everything set out. That's not what a banquet was in their day. 
They had food and they had fun, all right? And a large crowd of tax collectors and others. Now, here's the thing. Tax collectors were so despised, the only people that would hang out with them were other people that were very despised. This was not the who's who of society. In fact, if you don't believe it, look what the Pharisees say. They get upset. Why do you keep eating with tax collectors and sinners? But here's what I love about it. Levi, all he knows is that Jesus called me to follow him, and this is such an unbelievable thing. I've got to get other people to follow me. I've got to get other people to follow me to Jesus so that they'll follow him. And he just wants to share the first thing that people do in Scripture when they have Jesus set them free is they go share. In fact, Jesus has to tell them sometimes, Wait before you share everything. The woman at the well comes. She's been an adulterer. She's had five husbands. She tell, hears about Jesus. Jesus tells her who He is. The first thing she does, she runs back to tell people about Jesus. The demoniac that has legion, literally thousands of demons within him, Jesus casts them out and he says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no, go back. And he goes back to tell people about Jesus. What happens here is Levi says, I've got to share about Jesus. And you want to know the way that you can tell if Jesus has complete control of your life, if he's the center of everything, is if you try to find ways to work him into every conversation you have. You just share it. I read this week about Randall Cunningham. Remember Randall Cunningham? Those of you that are sports people, he was a uh, great quarterback for the Eagles and the Vikings and the Cowboys. But Cunningham was a believer in Christ. And when he uh, retired finally, somebody in Minneapolis, St. Paul, wrote a story about how great of a guy he was. And this secular newspaper talked about him always taking time for the fans. They tell the story of a, a sweet story of this girl that had made a special sign for him that she wanted him to see and that he had left the, the stadium that day and had never got a chance to see her or to sign it. But as he was driving away from the stadium, he saw her standing there with her sign with her head down, dejected. He turned the car around, went back and signed it for her. Special. But they said one of the things that Randall Cunningham used to do is he would invite people to eat with him. He would be at a restaurant, and at a restaurant he'd be sitting there, and somebody would come up and go, aren't you Randall Cunningham? He'd say, I would. He goes, oh, we'd love to have an autograph. And he would say, well, would you want to eat with us? And they said what always happened in the midst of that conversation, this uh, reporter said, I'd seen it several times, is that somewhere in the midst of the conversation he would ask them about their spiritual life and what they believed about Jesus. He was always sharing. The first thing we see in this passage is that when Jesus calls us, He demands everything. Here's a second thing. Write this down somewhere. While He demands everything, He rejects anything else. He rejects anything else. What we see in this passage of Scripture is one guy who was the least likely to follow Jesus, suddenly give up everything to follow Him, and a group of guys that should have understood that wouldn't. I mentioned it already, but the Pharisees and the tax collectors, I mean the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, complained to the disciples. What I find interesting is oftentimes in Scripture, especially as it moves on, they no longer complain to Jesus, they complain to the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. 
Let me tell you that as Christians, one of the things that we have to guard against constantly is spiritual pride. We must always guard against pride. When we become more concerned about ourselves than the people to whom Jesus wants us to minister, we're guilty of spiritual pride. When we look out at people that are around us and we're more concerned about what is making us comfortable than what should be given to them in order that they might understand who Jesus is, then we're experiencing spiritual pride. When we look around us and say that unless people are doing it like we're doing it, then they're not really followers of Jesus, we are guilty of spiritual pride. Let me tell you a way that you can tell if you are guilty of spiritual pride. If when I ask the question, who of your friends do you know that need Jesus as their Savior and you can't think of anybody? You're guilty of spiritual pride. The truth is Christ calls us to go and to find. These people didn't understand is that God loves every person just as He loved them. And as Christians, one of the real difficulties we have is the farther we get into following Jesus sometimes, the more likely we are to not give Him everything in our lives. I read a poem this week by a guy named Sam Shoemaker. And it talks about what he feels about the church and how he constantly wants to make sure he's looking at those outside. He said, I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay outside. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which people walk when they find God. There's no use for me to go way inside and stay there. There are so many outside. And they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. All that many ever find is the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along like blind men and women with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for the door, knowing there must be a door, but they never find it. So I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they wouldn't forget what it was like before they got in. You can go into the church too deeply and stay in too long and you forget the people outside the door. So I'll take my place. Near enough to God to know Him and to hear Him, but not so far removed from the people as to hear them and remember that they are outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them, but more important to me, one or two of them, ten of them whose hands I am intended to put on the latch. So I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. For I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I stand by the door. The simple fact is that Jesus, while He was a great teacher and a loving man, He demanded of us everything and He demanded that we look to those who need Him. So how do we respond to His demands? How do you and I respond to the demands that He puts on our lives? If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, this is the same way you would uh, respond to His demands. If you are here and you're a believer in Jesus, but maybe through the years you've tried to take back more and more instead of giving Him everything, here's how you respond. First of all, we need to realize we are sick. Look what it says in verse 31. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus comes to people who are sick. Now, that can mean two things. First of all, we need to realize that without Christ, we are eternally sick. We are dead in our sin and we have no hope. But it also reminds us that as followers of Jesus, He has not yet glorified our bodies. And so we still have this sickness in us that we fight. 
There was a time in my life when I did not realize I had diabetes. Right? Now the reality is I had diabetes even if I didn't realize I didn't have it. The truth is some of you are sitting in this room today and you may have diabetes and you don't know it. But that doesn't mean you don't have it. Men are sometimes the worst at thinking that if they just don't know they have something, that they don't have it. I've talked to men before that said to me, you know what, I don't want to go to the doctor because I don't want to find out what I got. And there are spiritual people there that I know there's something going on, but I don't know what it is, and so I don't want to realize it. We have to come to the place where we realize we are sick. And then we have to come to the great physician. That's the second part. We have to come to the great physician and say, we are sick. There are problems here. There is something going on, and I need to know what it is. Almost 20 years ago, we realized something was going on in my life, and we went to the doctor. And I went to the doctor and they ran me through tests and they found out what it was and I received a diagnosis. I had type 1 insulin-dependent diabetes. And when I found that out, it was almost like it was, a, it, was, it was a weird feeling because on one hand, I was really upset I had it, but on the other hand, I was excited to find out what I had. And the truth is that whenever we come to realize that we are sick, We must go to the great physician to figure out what to do about it. And the third thing is then we must listen and accept his treatment. Now imagine if I walked into that building that day, they found out I had diabetes, my parents said, that's great, we're going home, not going to do anything differently. Some of you in this room have gone to the doctor and they've given you blood pressure medicine or cholesterol medicine or advised you not to do certain things and you go home And you don't take the medicine and you do whatever you want to. Just getting the diagnosis isn't good enough. You know what's interesting? I found uh, this week, uh, many of you know, some of you may not, my dad had uh, bypass surgery uh, five years ago almost. Uh, Major bypass surgery, six bypasses. My dad, who weighed all of 145 pounds, uh, walked two miles a day, had a heart attack. What I found interesting this week is, and my dad's not part of this statistic, is that after they have the heart attack and they get the the, uh, bypass surgeries and all of that, that over half, somewhere around 65% of heart surgery patients don't change a thing about how they live. And the reality is it's not any good to know you got something if you're not doing something about it. And in this realization, what Jesus is saying is we've got to come to Him and accept His treatment of giving everything. This week, I had the opportunity to visit with my brother, as I do on most weeks. Go see him a couple of times. Brian's birthday was this week, and that makes you think about a lot of stuff. I appreciate, first of all, all the prayers that you've given, all the things that you have sent, the, the words of encouragement you've given to our families. We really appreciate that. Brian turned 38 years old this week. I used to joke with him about the fact he was getting close to 40, and the reality is, in light of what's happened in Brian's life, I'm glad he's still getting closer to 40. And I went and visited with him last week and sat down and had a conversation with him. Susan and the boys had gone with me. It was last weekend. And and my boys in a hospital room can get a little rambunctious at times. They're five and almost two. And so Susan took the boys and they were going somewhere else. And I went back in and just stayed with Brian for a little bit. And as I sat down next to Brian, we, we were just talking about stuff. There was a baseball game on television. He suddenly turned to me and he says, you know... Sometimes you think 
things in your life. And his speech is still not great. He's still recovering there. See, think some things in life are really important. And then something like this happens and you realize they don't really matter. Brian and I, over the next few minutes, spent just time talking about what really matters in life. And you know, I I never wanted what happened to my brother to happen, and we still have a long road ahead. We still appreciate your prayers. I mean, we don't know what the future holds for Brian. We're trusting in the Lord who holds the future. We're trusting in Romans 8.28 that he's going to bring good out of this situation. We're trusting in what Joseph said about that, that, that what was intended for evil, God's going to turn into good. And I never wanted for him at the age of 38 to have a moment when he had a life-threatening illness, something that is life-altering, and that for him to have that, that, that made him think, you know what, there are some things that really don't matter. But since he said that over a week ago, that phrase, that thought has not left my mind. And as I was reading this passage of Scripture this week, and as I was thinking in my own life, okay, Lyle, what is God calling you to give up? What is it in your life that you're holding on to that you haven't given? What is the everything that God is calling for in your life? And as I wrestled with those questions, you know what I found out? A lot of the everything stuff in my life was stuff that didn't matter. It's stuff that if it were gone tomorrow, I could still move on with my life. And the truth is, when Christ calls us to give up everything, it's not a selfish thing. It's not He's trying to punish us. He just knows that His plans are better. His ways are better. His his thoughts are higher than ours. And He intends to give us a life that we cannot imagine. But so many of us hold on to the stuff because we don't want to see what that life is all about. And this morning, my question to you is, what is your everything? What is it? What's the center of your solar system? What is it that is in the middle and everything else revolves around? What is the center of your life? Because if it's anything other than Christ, then that's going to crumble.